Father, thank you that there is a day coming where when we open our eyes, we will see you as you really are. Not, not through a mirror dimly as we try to perceive you on this earth, but we will see you face to face in all your glory, your majesty. And as we stand before you, we will be clothed in your righteousness without spot or wrinkle, perfect before you. Father, what a glorious day that would be, that will be. We look forward to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I was thinking this week, uh, Helena Troy must have been some kind of woman. I mean, two kingdoms went to war over her. A thousand men gave their lives so that one might have her. I mean, hers was the face that launched a thousand ships. Now, Helen was the wife of Menelaus, king of Greece in 9th century B.C., and their home was a peaceful Mediterranean kingdom, that is, until Paris. Prince of Troy showed up. Now, he fell in love with Helen, and depending on what version of the story you've heard, uh, she with him. And so under the cover of darkness, he stole her away. And as a result, Menelaus, her husband, and Helen's brother, Agamemnon, end up amassing a gigantic, massive Greek army, and they set sail in a thousand ships to Troy to lay siege to that city in order to bring her back. They had began the Trojan Wars, they say. I mean, no one has ever been so pursued. I mean, I wonder what it was like for Helen knowing that Menelaus wanted her so. You know, every one of us in this room longs to be wanted, something like that. And we come into this world, I mean... Longing to be loved and delighted in. And though it begins well as an infant looking at the delight in your parents' eyes, every one of us is destined for disappointment. No one has ever loved as deeply as they'd like to be loved. In fact, it's a rare person who is sought for who they are rather than what they can do. All of us. Long to be loved well. I mean, can you recall a time in the past where someone sat down with you for the purpose of wanting to get to know your heart and fully expecting to enjoy what they found there? I mean, such pursuit is rare on our earth. We get just mere glimpses of that kind of pursuit. But did you know that's exactly how God is pursuing the nation of Judah right now? In fact, if you want to see exactly what I'm talking about, just turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. And let's take a look at the power of what we forget versus what we remember. Now, chapter 16 is really the tale of passionate love, deep tragedy, And also, surprising redemption. 
It's the story of an adopted girl who, uh, well, she forgets her father's great love for her, and she sells herself into prostitution. In fact, this chapter contains so many sordid sexual details that the ancient rabbis refused to read it out loud uh, in the synagogue. I mean, this chapter is really a no-holds-barred description of love, lust, iniquity, and prostitution. And last week we saw that it begins tragically with an abandoned infant lying in her own blood, left in a field to die. She's never been held, never been washed, and she surely would have perished there if it hadn't been uh, for another who came along and rescued her, loved her well. I mean, he washed her off. He adopted her. He clothed her. He cared for her just like she was one of her own. Now, you need to know, it, it wasn't unusual during Ezekiel's day for a child to be abandoned in the streets of a city, especially a female child. I mean, male children had value. Female children were seen as a liability. And if a man actually picked up an abandoned baby, it wasn't to care for it. I mean, it wasn't to care for her at all. It was so she might grow up and he might turn her into a prostitute so he might benefit from her plight in life. But but this child, as we saw last week, this child... Well, she is fortunate. She grows up under the adoptive wing of a loving father. And he gives her all she needs to thrive and flourish. And he protects her. He provides for her every need. Now, the child that I'm speaking of is really the nation of Judah. And the loving father is really God in the story. And we discovered last week in chapters 1 through 14 that as the nation comes of age, God the Father, well, He enters a covenant of marriage with her. And as a result, her reputation, it, it, it spreads far and wide. And kings and queens from all over the world come to see her, her wealth and to listen to her wisdom And if her story ended there, it'd be a classic rags-to-riches story. But it doesn't. What happens next is tragic. Let's start in verse 15. But. Everything turns on that one word. But. You trusted your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone Passing by who would have it. You took some of the garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. So our story takes a sinister turn, doesn't it? And we discover a great betrayal. God's bride abandons her loving husband The one who made her famous, who gave her her wisdom, who provided all her wealth. And she decides to commit adultery, giving herself freely to others. You see, she forgets that her father, God's gifts were given. 
for God's purposes. And as a result, her kings end up making treaties with other nations through marriage. And these foreign wives, they bring in their foreign gods, which end up enticing the nation to begin worshiping alien idols. And she became like the nations around her, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And she, as she grew up, she thumbed her nose at the love and the faithfulness of her husband. And she abandons this covenant relationship. Abandons the one who cared for her. Who risked it all to rescue her. Look at verse 17. It says, You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made it for yourself male images, and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments, covered them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my food which I gave you, the pastries of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as a sweet incense. Notice her husband says, it was my gold, it was my silver. My oil, my incense, my food that you took and gave to these other lovers. I mean, the the nation has lost sight of the fact that everything they have had been given to them by God. And, And as a result, her idolatry really knew no bounds. Look at verse 20. It says, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them, causing them, meaning the children, causing the children to pass through the fire? I mean, can you see what's going on here in the text? The wickedness is so pervasive throughout the land that parents are starting to offer their children as sacrifices to these false gods. In fact, historians tell us that in the Valley of Hinnon, which is right outside the wall of Jerusalem, this was the place that they would regularly offer child sacrifice uh, to other gods, the god Molech. And did you notice that God refers to the children not as the children or your children, but my children. In other words, you're doing this to my family, to my kids. My goodness, where did it all go wrong? Well, God tells us that the root of Judah's betrayal can be seen in verse 22. Look at that. And he says, In all of your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Can you see it? Judah's problem. Judah's problem goes all the way back to an attitude of ingratitude. They had, they they were um, burdened with forgetfulness. He says they didn't remember. In other words, they did forget all that God had given to them. They took it for granted. They, they assumed that what they had was the result of their own effort. 
Did you know you can't grow faith without remembering? You can't grow faith without remembering. In fact, faith matures and strengthens. It is strengthened by remembering in the present what God has done in the past. Remembering is the fertile soil that allows faith to put down roots and begin to grow. Remembering reminds us of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, which as a result makes us want to trust God all the more. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He said, forgetfulness of God's love is the source of all sin. Forgetfulness. I've got a page in the back of my journal where I've just traditionally written down the things that I mean, I've seen God do. I mean, I mean the, the way He's provided for my family, if miraculous way, I've just jotted it down because I'm, I'm forgetful. I've got recorded here the, the things I've seen Him do that are unmistakably Him, the, the, the things that He's provided for our family, the, the, the things that, where He kind of blew my mind because He did it this way and I didn't expect this outcome. You know, when things begin to get tough in my life, when I hit a hard stretch, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll take out my journal, I'll thumb over to this last page, and I'll just read through the list. I did that this week. It brought a smile to my face. I started to chuckle. I th- I'd forgotten. God did that. And when, I, when I read it through, you know what it does? It, it reminds me of who God is. It reminds me of His intention towards me. As I read through the list, my faith begins to strengthen. In fact, it gives me courage to take a step forward and to move through difficulties in life. I mean, no wonder the Scripture is so filled with commands to remember and don't forget. I mean, how about you? Do you pause and take time to remember? Remembering is fertile ground for faith to grow. Or or do you just assume that what you have is the result of your own effort? God says He's given us all things. Everything we have is from Him. What would it be like this week if you set aside just ten minutes to do a little remembering? What has God done this past year? Where have I seen Him work? And as you jot something down, you thank Him for it. Then you ask God to bring something else to mind. And you jot it down, you thank Him for it. I mean, what do you think that would do to, to your faith? What would it do to your perspective? But if you're like me, if I don't jot it down immediately, I mean, when it happens, within 24 hours, I've forgotten it. I forgot half of the things on my list. So what if you made a habit of finding a place where you recorded things like that, and after a year you went back and read them through. Now, I want you to notice back in the text that Judah's unfaithfulness is there because they've probably forgotten. 
And her unfaithfulness to her husband, it really goes way beyond adultery. And she becomes a prostitute. She starts actively seeking out other lovers. And unlike a prostitute, a typical prostitute who is paid for services rendered, I want you to notice what she does. Verse 32, it says, You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of your husband, instead of her husband. Men make payment to harlots, but you make payment to all your lovers and hire them to come to you from all around your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot and that you gave payment. No one, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. You see, Judah's unfaithfulness has left her with a callous heart. She, she no longer can feel the love in the pursuit of her husband. So she becomes a prostitute. But really, it says she's worse than a prostitute. And that she's addicted to her prostitution. Not because she needs the money, but because it makes her feel good. But unlike a prostitute who is paid for services rendered, she ends up having to pay others to be with her. Instead of them paying her to be with them. I mean, no wonder the rabbis didn't want this read in the synagogues. But you know what? You, you and I can be just like Judah. You know, we, we've got a tendency to focus our attention and to fill our lives on the things that we think bring life, but don't. I mean, this world has a way of convincing us that life is found in pursuit of fame and fortune, uh, power and pleasure. So, so God is forced from time to time to move in and disrupt our lives so that we will loosen our grip on the things that we think bring life but don't. And God knows as long as our lives are tied to these things, we're in trouble. And we can't experience all that He has for us to experience. So God, here in the text, well, He doesn't stand idly by and watch the one He loves destroy herself. Like Menelaus of, Greek, of Greece, He moves heaven and earth to draw His bride back. Look at verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Because, of your filth, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them from all around against you, and you will, and, and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see your nakedness. Now God tells Judah what we often forget, and that is being loved well means that God will love us through great discipline at times. And so Judah is face, comes face to face with God's correction here in the text. And God will allow 
his children, his, his people to experience the consequence of their sin. Not because he delights in our anguish, but so that we can see the devastating results of it and then seek the only one who can give us freedom from it. So when God says, I'll uncover your nakedness, he, he's saying, I'm going to expose your sin for what it is. I mean, just like a drug addict who has to come to the end of himself before he can see clearly that the drugs are destroying his life, Judah has to face a similar reality as well. I mean, the only way she's going to discover life is not going to be found in pursuing alliances with other nations. And it's not found in worshiping other gods. It is that God is going to compel her many lovers, these nations and these other gods, to turn on her. To show their true colors. So she can begin seeing the futility of her ways. Verse 39. And I will also give... in. To their hands, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places, and they shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beauty, the jewelry, your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare, and they shall also bring up the assembly and assembly against you. And they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with the sword. And they shall burn your house with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot. And you may no longer hire lovers. Wow. You know, there there do, do come times in our life when it, it feels like God is unconcerned with our plight. Or maybe it feels like He's actively working against us. And sometimes it's true. The story of Judah's captivity is a poignant reminder here of God's fierce intention to do whatever it takes to pry us from the self-made lives that we've built so that we feel like we can find life through artificial things, rather than finding life where God meant it to be lived in dependence upon Him. So there are times God will use the brokenness of this world to bear on the brokenness of our souls. Now, that might be the unpleasantness you feel when things don't go the way you want them to. Or it might be the unrest you sense when you want something so bad and you can't get it. God will allow the, unbro- the brokenness of this world to begin to poke us, to, to prod us, to, to disturb us, to unsettle us, to, to make us feel uncomfortable in such a way that it begins to waken us, to teach us, to disturb us, to strengthen us, and train us to become less dependent upon the things of this world that we think bring life, but don't, so that we will find our ultimate satisfaction in the only one that can give us satisfaction, and that's God. So so just like the nation of Judah, uh, our souls are broken in that we think we can control, we can manipulate, we can 
secure what we want to be happy. We, we try to write our own story. So they all end up with, and they lived happily ever after because our broken souls think that we can be satisfied with the broken things of this world. But, but if you're one of God's children, I mean, the good news is that God wants to set you free from that self-centered, foolish kind of thinking. He, he will use the brokenness of this world to bear, to put pressure on our broken souls in order to rescue us from us and our faulty thinking. And that's why he says in verse 39, and I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. Wow. Now, when we read about God's fury, we immediately say, well, there's that old angry God of the Old Testament. But did you know God's fury is really a reflection of the depth of His love? It's a reflection of the depth of His love for you. You see, God's fury is more focused against the things that can bring us harm than it's focused against us. In other words, God's fury against sin is not a rejection of us in anger as much as it is a reflection of the depth of His love for us. In fact, we we had a poignant reminder of God's fury not too long ago. Uh, Patty uh, taken our two boys when they were small uh, to an out-of-the-way park for a picnic one afternoon. Daniel, was he was about five years old. He was down by the lake. Josh was climbing a tree behind us, behind her, and she was laying out the picnic lunch when suddenly this gigantic German shepherd comes bolting out of the woods, running directly toward Daniel and attacks him. He jumps upon Daniel, grabbing his head in its jaws and pulling him down to the ground. And, of course, Daniel is screaming for help. Well, Patty, who is normally scared of big, angry dogs, uh, he just naturally... But you wouldn't have known it this day. When she looked up to see what was going on and saw Daniel was being attacked by a dog, this gigantic German shepherd, she grabbed the first thing she could grab, and that was a part of the newspaper, and she took off in a dead run directly toward the attack, running across the field with the paper raised high, yelling at the top of her lungs, You let him go! You let him go! And when she arrived at where the attack was taking place, she grabbed the dog by the top of the neck and began kicking it and hitting it in the head with the newspaper until that dog let go. And when the dog let go, Patty let go. And then she lunged at him, threw the paper at him to make sure he continued to leave. Daniel, he had some cuts on the side of his head. He was crying in a heap, and he reached down and scooped him up and then just sat down on the grass and held him, trying to calm his frightened heart. You know, I, I don't think Patty has ever been so furious in her life. 
But her wrath was not pointed at Daniel. Nor was it trying to extract some kind of punishment from Daniel. Now, what Patty had done is with great risk to herself, she rescued the one that she loved. And when Daniel's heart finally slowed down, he got a little control, with big tears in his eyes, he looked up at Patty and said, Mom, are you mad at me? You see, in all the turmoil, Daniel had mistaken Patty's fury. Her wrath is aimed at him. But he wasn't the focus of Patty's wrath. He was the beneficiary of it. And that's the way God's fury, His wrath is in Scripture. It's just like that. I mean, God sees the evil that mars His creation. And He sees the evil that destroys the people He loves. And so He has to rid us of it. God's wrath is not the opposite of God's love, but it's really one of the expressions of it. And so notice, notice God concludes in verse 42. He says, there comes a day when I will lay aside or lay to rest my fury toward you. And my jealousy shall depart from you. And I will be quiet and be angry no more. He said when the drug addict finally comes to the end of himself and he realizes that he can't do this on his own. Drugs are ruining his life. He's got to trust a higher power. Well, that is the day. That's the day God's wrath is no longer needed. That, that's the day he sets aside his anger. His anger will be no more. Now, that, that day, that perfect day, is sometime in the future, and it will be a great day of restoration. Now, you've got to remember that God is telling a story here. And a story is only as good as its ending. I mean, if you know the ending of a story, it takes away all the fear, doesn't it? And if you know the ending, it can free you up to enjoy the drama. No matter how hair-raising it might be, you get to enjoy it. Well, God concludes His story in verse 60. Notice what He says. Uh, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you when you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. And God is saying, you didn't remember me, but I'm going to remember you. In fact, I'm going to remember you and remember the covenant I made with you years ago in the days of your youth when you were a young nation. You see, Judah, what Judah has done is despicable and it's shameful. But you know what? God does not define us by what we do, our sin. He defines us by who we are, His people. And He promises to remember His covenant, what, with His people. And notice, He goes on, He says, and, and 
I'll establish an everlasting covenant with you. You see, Judah will indeed be taken into captivity. Seventy years they will be released, a remnant will return to the land, and that's where we learn that God's discipline on the nation of Judah had its desired effect. The nation of Israel never again returns to worshiping foreign gods and foreign idols. But God knows, God knows that they were created for far more than that. You see, you and I were created for intimacy with God. So you know what God does? He conceives the most daring of plans. Under the cover of darkness. He will sneak into our world disguised as an infant. I mean, the Ancient of Days is going to become an, a baby. I mean, I love the way Philip Yancey puts it. He says it this way, The Incarnation is a daring raid on enemy territory. So God, He will lay siege to the, um, the kingdoms of darkness and to the idols of our heart, just like Menelaus laid siege to Troy. Uh, not to punish us, no. Not to punish us for our sin, but to win our hearts back to Him. And that's exactly what Ezekiel's referring to when he says there will be an everlasting covenant, which is really the new covenant that Jesus spoke of in the New Testament. And this new covenant means that God wants to bring in a new way of relating to us. and He wants to bring a change that will take place in us from the inside out. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, he says it this way. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take your heart of, your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Paul paints the picture just like this in the New Testament. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this new covenant, this new heart, this new life, is going to open a door to a new intimacy with God. So what do you need to remember this weekend? Did you know the word remember has been used five times in this chapter alone? Maybe for some of you, you need to remember that all you have has been given to you by God. Remember the fertile soil that faith needs to grow is remembering. Or maybe you need to remember that you are loved well. God's love doesn't, uh, it, it means that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. His love for you is not based upon your behavior, it's based upon who you are, His child. Or maybe for some of you, uh, you need to remember that difficulties and discipline doesn't mean that God is rejecting us. But it's a reflection of the depth of His love. All He's trying to do is loosen your grip on the things 
that keep him from drawing you close to his heart. Or some of you may need to remember God's longing is to draw you close, that no matter what you've done in the past or what you will do in the future, there's always the option of restoration in God's family. Father, thank you. Thank you for this confusing and just gnarly passage, but the truth that is revealed in it. Would you remind us this week to remember? Would you bring to mind the things we need to remember and to reflect on? Would you help us look for a way we can pause this week Reflect on all that you've done and then thank you for it. Because we know that all that we have has come from your hands. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before you leave, I want to remind you this is the last weekend you you can take advantage of Operation Christmas Child. uh, And if you want to take advantage of that and pick up a shoebox, You can stop by the Christmas tree out in the atrium and take advantage of that today. And hope you enjoy the rest of this great day. We'll see you back next week.